Well, apparently there's some big game this afternoon. No, I'm well aware of the fact, and in fact, I'll tell you, I've become a bigger sports nerd in the last year, and there's been a couple of breakthrough experiences that have sort of brought this on in my life, the first of which I was invited last May by a buddy to go to the PGA Championship, which is a golf tournament, if you don't, if you're not aware of that, and that was in upstate New York, and had a great time out there. And so cool to be on the course, traveling around with some of the top players in the world. Unless you sit like at the Celtics courtside or something, I'm not sure that you can get much closer to these elite athletes. So it's a very cool experience. And another buddy of mine, his brother-in-law happens to be a tour player. And so during the tournament and, and, and following, and just over the past year, I've been following scores and Seeing how, seeing how Scott is doing out there and seeing how the tournaments are going and keeping up with some of the stats. The other cool experience for me uh, was last fall, I, I've gotten involved in helping lead a Bible study with football players from Merrimack College, which is just up the road. And that's been a great time of ministry and fellowship with them and being God's word together. But I did not play football. I really didn't touch any of the contact sports no pun intended. Um, so it's been, I've always actually liked college football. And uh, so it's been a bit of a learning curve, but learning all sorts of things about FCS college football and following their season and uh, learning all about stats and positions and all these different things. And so I am officially, I think, a sports nerd. Well, why are sports so compelling for so many of us? Now, some of you in the room have, have no use for sports whatsoever, and grace to you, that's entirely fine. But one interesting theory about why sports is so dominant for, and compelling for so many of us is, is that sports, in many ways, is a world that kind of makes sense. Outside of sports, our world often doesn't make sense, is often confusing, but in sports, the rules are the rules. We sort of know what to expect. The underdog can win any given time. In the rest of life, it feels like that's sometimes not the case in our society. But there's another piece, too, and uh, I think it's this. I think, quite sadly for some, sports offers a, a deeper sense of unity and connectedness than they might otherwise experience. So if you go to Gillette Stadium or if you go to any bar on a Patriots game day, what's the ethos there? What happens there? Well, sometimes perfect strangers become the best of buddies if they're playing well. Or if they're not playing well, which was often the case this past season, you're a community of fellow sufferers together in a shared experience. Well, Jesus, of course, tells us about a deeper unity and a deeper connectedness that he prays for, that he contends for in prayer. And it's a, a unity that's at the very heart of our text this morning. It's a unity that's, that's top of heart and mind for Jesus as he faces the end. This morning, we wrap up this series that we've been in for several weeks in the Gospel of John. And as you may know, what follows in chapters 18 and on is Jesus' suffering, 
his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his post-resurrection appearances. But we're wrapping up this series today, and again, we're looking at what's, what's top of mind and heart for Jesus Christ as he's in his final hours, as he's facing suffering and crucifixion. Anybody who's trying to responsibly interpret the Word of God reminds us that the Scriptures were not primarily written to us, but for us. So they're not primarily written to us, but they have been written for us. And of course, from that, we get the reminder that we have to appreciate the context of a passage to understand the meaning. But this text this, this morning, friends, in many ways stands apart. This text is about as close as it comes for us to a scripture written to us. And I want to look with you this morning at the reasons for Jesus' urgent call to unity, to oneness. And then out of this offers several recommendations for how we can live this out. And so as we look at this important word, would you first join me in prayer? And so God, we do again thank you for your word and we thank you for your heart on display in this text this morning. Pray, Lord, that you might encourage and inspire us and compel us to live this out in our lives. Lord, thank you that you are one God. You are not divided. And that forms the pattern for our own unity together, Lord. So help us to pursue this. Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds as we look at your word together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So two reasons, at least two reasons, I would say, for this unity that Jesus offers us here. And the first is because, as I just prayed, God is unified in himself. Look at verses 20 and 21. And if you'll remember, Jesus, just before this text, has been praying for his immediate disciples. But now he turns to those who would believe through their message. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So those who will believe in Jesus through their message is you and I and all the church through the ages. Since the, the disciples went around preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God, and so Jesus here in this text, he's reminding us, this Jesus, God the Son, he's reminding us of this unity that he enjoys with God the Father. And this has been explicit throughout the Gospel of John so far. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, who is this Word this word, of course, is God become flesh in Jesus Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you want to strengthen your Trinitarian theology, just take a year and hang out in the Gospel of John for some time. And... Uh, 
what is very often for us a difficult thing to wrap our heads around may become a little bit clearer because it's all across the pages of this gospel. And it's a, it's a biblical, it's a historic, it's an orthodox Christianity that affirms this one God who exists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's important that the, that, that the Father is in the Son and in the Spirit because by that we know that the works of Christ and now the works of the Spirit are in fact the works of God. And it's important that the Son is in the Father because that helps us believe Jesus' words that we looked at a few weeks ago in John 14, that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So this challenges our, 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 our finite brains in many ways. Just the other week I was trying to explain the Trinity to my eight-year-old. And uh, I've studied these things. I've thought long and hard about them and had a difficult time. But friends, one of the realities of our salvation, one of the realities of what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ is that we are brought into this very divine love, this divine unity of the Trinity. And this divine love, it's important to remember, Jesus says in this text, has existed for all eternity. Verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so this is who God is. God is unified in himself. And Jesus prays first that we'll live into this unity because it reflects the unity of our God. But many of us need a little more down-to-earth reasoning, and Jesus provides that. And the second reason that Jesus calls us to unity, contends for unity, prays for unity, is because he knows that our unity has a missional power in the world. Verse 22 and 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, even and loved them even as you have loved me. So amazing what Jesus is saying here is, is that somehow our unity within the church, within the body of Christ, within this community, somehow validates his own heavenly authority. It somehow validates the love of God for us, his people, as we love each other, as we serve each other, as we honor one another. And as you may well know, the church's record on unity has been a little mixed through the ages. There's been times where, where, where the church was really living in to this unity, and it had a powerful missional effect. And interestingly, not all, but many of these times seem to come when Christians are a misunderstood small religious minority or movement. I think of reflections like we have from Tertullian, a second century A.D., church leader, theologian. He's living in North Africa. And Tertullian writes to, to defend the, the, the right of this countercultural Christian movement that he is a part of to exist. Not only that, to flourish. 
in a pagan society. And Tertullian describes in his writing, The Apology, he describes some of the common perceptions outside the church of this movement, of this community. He writes, But even the putting into practice of so great a love as this brands us with a mark of censure in the opinions of some. So he's just described the various ways that the Christian community shares its resources, loves one another, cares for widows, cares for orphans, cares for those who have been imprisoned for the faith. He is saying so great a love as that brands them with a mark of censure in the opinions of some. But he continues, they say, speaking of pagan society, they say, see how they love each other, for they themselves hate each other. And pagan society might say, how ready they are to die for each other. And Tertullian adds the editorial comment, for they, the world, seem more ready to kill each other. So there's been bright spots. Until about a century later when Christianity effectively becomes the state religion in the empire, what we see here is that many Christian communities are catching flack from the rest of society for their love for each other, for a sacrificial love. But this love has at times been a powerful testimony to the world. Other periods of Christian history have seen more division, more infighting. And sometimes these have come at a time when, ironically, Christianity has had pride of place in society, even dominance in society. I think of even our local church history right in New England. If you read and study it, it's a bit of a wild west. I think of guys like Roger Williams, a a pastor who is is banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1600s. He's banished from the colony by other Christian leaders. He's, He's removed from his pulpit in Salem, Massachusetts because of his convictions about baptism and about the separation of church and state. And Williams and some of his followers, they settle in Providence, Rhode Island in establish a settlement for truly religious freedom. Or I think of a George Whitfield. You may have heard of George Whitfield, a guy, a, a revivalist preacher, evangelist in the mid-1700s, and this man was instrumental in bringing hundreds of thousands of people into a true conversion to Jesus Christ. He crossed the Atlantic Ocean numerous times. He had a ministry in in England and, and, and in the colonies. And it, some scholars say that 80% of, of all American colonists saw the face of George Whitfield at one point in time. So he's traveling up and down the East Coast, preaching, leading people to a true faith, a, a, a new birth. But no pastors would let him preach in their pulpits. He was rogue. So we took to the open fields. He took to the town commons which actually worked out quite well for him because you could gather a whole bunch of people to hear the gospel and to be invited to a new birth. This Woodfield, he preached his last sermon from the window of a second-story bedroom in Newburyport, Mass., the bedroom in which he died in 1770. So the point is that 
as you look at church history, as you look around our world today, division in the church is nothing new. But there's a slight difference. What's the difference between our world today and the time of a Williams or a Whitfield? Well, today, Christianity is no longer assumed. It's no longer presumed. The scriptures are no longer honored in the same way. Biblical values are increasingly criticized. The, the, the truth claims of our Christian faith are increasingly challenged. But what hasn't changed is that there's a world that's still watching. question for us, churches, is the love of God really on display in how we relate to each other? Jesus says that a, a, a unified church is a glorious, shining light to the world. And I don't mean a church without theological disagreement. There's a place for that. But in agreement, I'm talking about, in disagreement, I'm talking about a church that embraces this sort of vision that would say in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So in those things that are core to the substance of our faith in Jesus Christ, unity. And tertiary issues, secondary issues, liberty. But in all things, in all our discussions, in all our discourse, charity. So friends, these are the two reasons that Jesus offers us in this text. And it's for the sake of the gospel, it's for the very sake of the kingdom that we seek to live into obedience of these things. But how does this land on us practically? What, what do we do with this? How are we to live, you might ask? Well, the simplest thing I'll offer you is to pray. To actively pray for other churches, to actively pray for other believers, actively pray for our church and one another. If you're like me, you've, you've had the thought at some point in your spiritual journey, however short or long that's been, you've maybe had the thought that those Christians are kind of weird. Those churches are kind of weird. Or on the other hand, this is the thought that comes to mind for me more often, is those churches are a little uptight. Those Christians are a little uptight. Whatever thought may come to your mind, the point is to pray. Pray for their flourishing. Pray for the different expressions of the body of Christ to really grow into the unique contribution God has given them to the body. Pray that they'll really know Christ. Pray that they'll be faithful to the Scripture. Pray that God would strip away anything that's not of Him. Pray that their churches would become healthy in all ways, organizationally, interpersonally, financially. So that's the first pray. Another one that may be very close to home for, for some of you, perhaps you're, you've been in transition between churches or you're visiting our church for maybe the first or second time, but one of the questions that comes with those transitions, in my mind, pastorally, is did you leave well or is there unfinished business? Is there unfinished business relationally? 
And if this is important enough for it to land in Jesus' prayer requests as he's about to face his suffering and death, if this unity is important enough to him, if we ask God, he will show us. He will show us where there's been unhealth, where there's been enmity, and he'll show you the steps to take. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Friends, there's, there's times where we have to contend for peace. There's times where we have to contend for health in the body. There's times where we have to be intentional. But this is the high calling that Jesus has given to us. If that resonates with you, if you feel stuck in that in any way, Find a trusted friend, find a leader, find a pastor to process that struggle with. Another one is if you're tempted to, to, to speak negatively of, a, of another church or another Christian leader, another pastor, ask God to give you self-control around that. I know that temptation. Just recently I caught myself in a conversation with another friend feeling like I was going down a road that, that I didn't want to go, that was ungodly. And, you know, if there's legitimate issues, if there's, if there's been toxicity that you've experienced, or perhaps even abuse, there's ways to deal with it appropriately, to deal with it biblically, not to deal with it immaturely. On a more positive note, you, you might consider embracing other opportunities to have fellowship with other believers from other churches. I think of, for example, the Good Friday Prayer Walk here in our community, where Christians across churches gather. I think of other prayer or worship gatherings. There's there's something special and beautiful about that that cross-fellowship that we can have. Sometimes we enter into theological differences. And so the question for us there is, how are we hashing that out? Are we having those conversations over coffee or a meal or in our living rooms or on Facebook? Now, I like a good theological debate as much as anyone, but what matters is how we have these conversations before a watching world. And of course, the world lives online. And so let us be thoughtful and careful. And finally, just a word about politics. And I want to say to you, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we have a presidential election this year. And there's all sorts of feelings about that for many of us. But I want to say to you that that no dearly held political persuasion or position is worth ostracizing another true brother or sister in Christ over. I want to say that no dearly held political persuasion or position is worth ostracizing, pushing away, cutting off fellowship with a true brother or sister in Christ over. Nothing wrong with political opinions. There's nothing wrong with political discourse. I think it matters a lot. And I think that we as believers should have these conversations 
I, should, I think we should be able to discuss, but the question is, is our dialogue gracious? Is it thoughtful? Is it prayerful? Just in the break between services, I had a couple of conversations with folks where there's real pain around this, even in families, even in friend circles. And whatever side you land on, how are you coming and showing up to that discussion? That's what matters. And so we seek to listen. We seek to understand. And friends, really, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God, we, we frankly can't make some of the same mistakes that we've seen in past election cycles. And I know that you will, many of you, I will feel certain strong emotions as the political year unfolds, as the discourse unfolds. But the question is, are we taking that to trusted friends? Are we taking that to the Lord? Are we taking that to respected leaders, pastors, or are we taking it to Facebook, X, or Insta? So let that challenge you in this season. Friends, this text is, is remarkable. It's, it's well worth your reflection. And anything that's on Jesus' heart, anything that's top of mind and heart for him as he faces the end is worth our serious consideration and reflection and faithful obedience. And so the call for us, church, is to honor one another, to love one another, to love the body of Christ, to serve each other, that we might reflect the goodness of God in this world and that the world may believe. Let us pray. Lord, we do ask for your courage. We do ask for your strength. We do ask, Lord, that we would be a beloved community that lives out the vision of John 17. God, help us. Give us self-control. Give us love. Give us charity. Give us compassion that we might represent you well in this world and that the world might come to believe. We pray this in your name. Amen.